Welcome. This is season three of The Daily Market, where we've decided to do something a little special. Earlier this year, startup junkie and marketplace master Ty Wolf-Jones, hey Ty, approached me and pitched us the idea of instead of interviewing founders and marketers, why don't we dive into the world of marketplaces, the VH1 behind the music of marketplaces, or what is the making of the sausage of a marketplace? Ty could bring the operations point of view, and I could bring the marketing point of view, and we could make some marketplace magic, or maybe a little more like Marketplace Mayhem. So join us for the series where we've spoken to over a dozen marketplace leaders and pioneers from Uber, Convoy, Bellhop, DoorDash, Rover, but also some rising stars and marketplaces from multiple countries, venture capitalists, and more. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Dear listeners, who is Ty Wolf-Jones? Tywolf Jones is a marketplace leader, guru, operator, and co-host of Marketplace Mayhem, spending most of his career in the startup tech industry. Ty comes actually from an entrepreneurial family, spending his childhood and teens in the cotton fields of two Larry, California. Look it up, small town, patching tires of 40-foot-tall tractors two miles deep in a field crossing at sunset. Fast forward to young, reckless cowboy Ty, and we find him operating in the enhanced drink industry becoming one of the first founding members of ZipFizz, Chowdow Tea, Fix, and Noon. Probably heard of the first and last one. After a stint here, he entered the world of startups and worked at well-known names like Tango Card, Uber, and DoorDash. A lover of the Northwest, a fine scotch whiskey and cigar. Over the course of 10 years, Ty skilled early-stage marketplaces as the operations guy, expanding into new markets at Uber and DoorDash, forged teams, pioneered relationships, and pushed boundaries. This conversation was a hoot. Ty is a truth-sayer. He's direct as nails and a fountain of marketplace stories. Sometimes I describe him as the Seth Godin of operations, and it honestly makes him a delight to be a partner with on this turbine journey into marketplace pandemonium. Did you know Ty has a personal cigar room? Think of a sauna, but it's just for smoking Earth's most magnificent stogies. This episode is particularly valuable for anyone who's an operations manager or works in any level of support at a marketplace or perhaps a fledgling tech startup. Ty has the answers if you have the questions. So please enjoy. And if you like what you hear, you don't need to like or subscribe. We just want to hear from you, write a review, even if it's just a couple words. Also, you can find the show notes for this episode at jacobkabicka.com forward slash Ty. That's J-A-K-U-B. K-U-B-I-C-K-A dot com forward slash T-Y. Without further ado, enjoy this colorful conversation with Ty Wolf-Jones. Hey, Ty, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Hey, so this season, season three, we're doing Marketplace Mayhem, which is your idea, my naming. Why are we doing this? Or why did you suggest doing it in the first place? Basically, I've been thinking about this idea, the subject matter for a while. I mean, I am a startup junkie through and through, like, you know, been member of a lot of startups, followed startups even longer, completely steeped in the language of startups, uh, especially Seattle scene. 
but anything, you know, West Coast, especially um, in a few of other cities, I, I just love following who's doing what, what are they doing? You know, what, what's the innovation? What's the big idea? Um, those types of things. That being said, you know, the way that I came into startups was a little bit different. Um, I'm not a tech guy, not in any way, shape or form. I'm purely an operations guy. And what I mean by that is I came from retail. I ran retail shop. After I kind of hit my wall in retail, I wanted to come up with something different. And I actually got in with a food product manufacturer startup many years ago and became their supply chain operations guy, a company called ZipFit. And basically they're an all natural energy drink. And and they were like a vitamin based energy drink powder that you drop into water. They were like a better emergency. Yeah, exactly. With caffeine and a whole bunch more vitamin B12, right? But again, I was the ops guy. I was the guy who ran the contract manufacturing contracts and the you know how much we made and where we shipped it um i dealt a lot with costco who was our biggest customer um shipping pallets of product out there i had warehouses i had you know so i was that guy and i learned that business and and lucky enough i i was able to meet a bunch of entrepreneurs in that space and startups in that space but i wanted to be in the tech space got into the tech space eventually because you know, eventually it kind of became cool to be an ops guy in the tech space with companies like Uber. And that's how I got into this whole thing. And so I kind of came at it from this idea of like, I'm an ops guy. I'm an execution guy. I'm a behind the scenes guy. I'm a make it go guy. And, you know, when you watch podcasts that have gotten popular in the last few years, the blogs and Twitter accounts and things that were really popular before that, They all talked a lot about customer demand, customer acquisition, you know, product market fit, that whole front end of the business, hugely important, right? Like you don't have a business if nobody buys it. Right. And I just kept thinking though, but there is this other side of the business. Like how do you make it cool to hear about the other side, the ops? the execution, the people who are in the trenches every day making it happen and may not be doing sales, may not be doing marketing, may not be the CEO of the company, but might be the COO of the company, right? Mm-hmm. The, the the number two, the, the, the behind the curtain guys, gals. And so I'd been playing with this idea for a long time. And that's when I started thinking about marketplaces in that purest sense of like, marketplaces are this great thing that's become hugely popular. There's tons of different versions of this from digital marketplaces to physical marketplaces. And suddenly there's this real concept of demand and supply. And therefore there are the demand generators, the the folks that bring in the business. And then there's the supply generators, the folks that find the suppliers and the people who have to do the business. And the marketplace is the cool company, the cool technology, the cool website or app that lives in the middle, right? And so finally, I was like, oh, there's really a way to tie this together. Again, if you go out there and look at a lot of marketplace-based blogs, you know, influencers, podcasts, they're very much on this idea of building it or creating your customer, getting your customers, finding that product market fit, not still didn't talk about the, the supply side. 
Um, and so when I noticed you were doing your podcast, digital marketing, all that, a lot about demand gen and marketing in general, I thought, what if we did this thing where we played off supply and demand? And we talked about the operations side, getting customers and making them happy, getting customers mm-hmm. and supplying them the service, the product, the thing they need, and put, put these two together and have an operations view as well as the demand view. And really then, someone who is at a startup or wants to be at one or they're starting their own business, they can get a pretty full scope perspective on things, the operations side and the marketing side. You're really getting a lot of bang for your buck, right? I think it's a more complete picture. 100%. It's more complete. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's not that finding your customer isn't important. It's the most important thing, obviously. But if you find your customer and you still don't know how to provide the service, provide the value, they're not gonna they're not gonna hit the buy button or they're not going to hit the buy button again, right? And 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 come back and do anything. And so and I do think it's the it's the lesser told story. It's the it's the untold part of running a startup, like the execution and the day-to-day operations of making it go better, faster, cheaper is what you have to do to make this thing be able to be a viable business at the end of the day. Most of that is operations, most of that is execution, most of that is back-end optimization and efficiency building um, that lives on the operations side of the fence. Right. Yeah. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that. So before we get too far into marketplaces, I got a question for you. So, so what does a tire buster do? <laughs> a tire buster is a nickname I gave. I've heard it out there in the industry. It is the guy who fixes your tire, the guy who puts on new tires for you, the guy who patches a hole in your tire. Yeah, grew up in a family farm tire business, uh, run out of the Central Valley of California, grew up in a family of tire busters. <laughs> Basically, Wolf Jones Rubber Company was a you know 50 some odd year old company started by my grandfather, run by my father, and then we sold the business in the late 90s. But yeah, it was a it was that honest to goodness, like let's, you know, in art of the farm, you know farmland in California. And we were one of the largest suppliers, fixers, providers of farm tire business in on the West Coast um, for for independent for, for, for many, many years. And were you a tire buster? I was a tire buster. Yeah, I grew up starting sweeping floors at our shop and then eventually fixing tires and eventually going out on calls out at guy farms and dairies all throughout all around Tulare, California. So where I grew up. Very cool. And was it fixing the tires of any car or was it a particular kind of vehicle? Well, cars typically came into the shop and we would fix them or put on new tires there. The calls going out to places was all farm and dairy related. Okay. Uh, Meaning, you know, these guys, when their tractor goes down, when when they get a hole in their tire or it blows or they need a new tire, they're stuck in the middle of a field. You got to take a service truck out there and fix the tire on site, figure out what the problem is, figure out how you're going to fix it and then fix it. Um, And that was a bit the puzzle that my dad always talked about loving. Hmm. Um, You never knew what you were going to find when you headed out there to a field. Could be three in the morning if they were milking cows or later in the afternoon and 100 degree heat if they were picking cotton on a humongous cotton gin, you know, cotton picker. So it was a bit niche. It was fixing tires of tractors, trucks, things that were in service of in that area. It wasn't just, you know, yeah. on a, on a cord. That's what we did was that was our big business was farms, 
passenger tires usually came in. I mean, we definitely went out on calls for people who were, you know, stuck on the side of the road, but not as much. Um, and we did all, we also did diesel tires as well. Um, but again, not, not our, not our bread and butter. Our bread and butter was definitely farm tires. Okay. Uh, heart, heart of the San Joaquin Valley. So that's, that was, you know, the bulk of what goes on there. Where's that? Is that in Southern, Central, or North California? Central. central. True Central. Yeah. Between like Sacramento and Bakersfield along mostly the 99 down there. And yeah, it's basically, you know, some of the most fertile farmland in the entire world. Big, you know, huge farms and dairies, orchards, you name it. California grows it um, and has it. So. Hmm. Grapes of Wrath, they're probably referencing this this area in the book. <laughs> my, grand, my grandparents were very much the same story as the Grapes of Wrath. Hmm. Came out from Oklahoma with another family, packed up everything that they owned in two trucks and drove cross country to start picking peaches in Tagus Ranch in uh, Central California. So very almost exactly the story of Grapes of Wrath. Um, my family were what, what they used to call Okies uh, in the Central mm-hmm. Valley of California. It's a great book. So you mentioned you're an ops guy. You actually said that a couple of times. <laughs> but 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 first, why did you get into marketplaces? Because you know you mentioned you were in retail, then you did some consumer product goods, commerce, e-commerce. Why did you end up shifting into tech marketplaces, even if you consider yourself not a tech guy? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to get in the tech startup world. So, you know, I was obsessed with startups, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, doing consumer product goods startups. So I was helping a couple entrepreneurs launch a few products that they had um, at that time. And what I mean by launching is figuring out formulas, figuring out who can make it, figuring out packaging, really tactical operational stuff, which was a lot of fun. But I really, there was this world of tech startups out there, especially in Seattle, that I wanted to know and be a part of a lot more. And so I was trying to figure that out. Interestingly enough, a, a friend of mine who had worked with me at a um, another startup, another consumer packaged goods startup, actually became the CTO of a local Seattle startup that had inventory. It was a virtual gift card company. Mm. Um, they're still around. They're called Tango Card. And they were in the rewards and incentives space. And basically, I he introduced me to the founder, started with him literally in his basement uh, here in Seattle and shipping gift cards, um, answering phones, answering emails. I was the customer support um, inventory kind of management guy and then shipping and fulfillment guy um, in those early days and ran that for four years with him, grew that, you know, with, with those guys from four people to, you know, at that time, you know, 40, 50 plus, they're now much bigger than that, and they're still they're still going and and doing big things. Um, in that time, though, like I said, it kind of became cool to be an operations guy in the tech startup space because all of a sudden this company called Uber kind of popped up, and they were trying to find these kind of uh, you know interesting profiles of operations people. Um, and so after Tango Card, I got a chance to join Uber, uh, Uber Seattle, which was the team. But I was actually on a very small sub team of about four people. And we were in this kind of initiative of Uber called the Uber Everywhere uh, team. So we basically helped launch uh, in Idaho, uh, Montana, Alaska, 
Wyoming. So, you know, back then, if you can believe it or not, there wasn't this kind of like broad acceptance of Uber everywhere. There was this kind of still this question mark of like, would Uber work outside of the major metros? Seemed like it would, should have worked, which seems like it was, and their their experiments were, but we were the ones that brought it to Boise, Idaho, right? So the, it was me and, and three other folks. I was, there was a GM, two ops managers, and a marketing manager. And yeah, we got to do some really fun things by flying out to Boise and doing those things. And that was this first taste of a marketplace, obviously, but it was also this tech world. Like we could do these really cool operational things because we were powered and enabled by all these really cool tech, really big idea guys and gals, and really willing to kind of just, you know, buck all the trends and uh, and try to take over the world um, with this idea. And it was fun to be on one of those small teams that got to really take this out to the less populated areas and less popular areas and, and see how Uber worked. Um, and it was fun. And that was my first foray in this true like supply and demand marketplace world. And there you fell in love. <laughs> Definitely you, found a home. What did you find from that experiment, that hypothesis of it being successful outside of major metropolitans? Well, as we all now know, like Uber, Uber was definitely popular. You know, there, there, there was definitely something powerful in the reputation they had built and the knowledge. Um, obviously, the other part of it is people travel, right? People go places, and so when they get off a plane, whether it's in a state that is, you know, as populous as LA or not, they're going to open that Uber app, you know, and see if they can catch their Uber on the way home from the airplane. And, and that was happening, obviously. And Boise is a beautiful city. Lots of people go there. Coeur d'Alene as well, Twin Falls, Idaho, et cetera. Um, all amazing places where people travel to, um, live in, et cetera. And 100% people were hungry for um, and th- this alternative that came in. And so um, it was one of those things, uh, which kind of was a was a thing at, at Uber at the time. As long as you had uh, the supply, as long as you had the cars, the drivers on the road, um, the riders were were willing and 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 waiting <laughs> to, to take a ride. Right. Yeah. But you, but you have to have the supply. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you mentioned a Tango card. You were doing you were doing operations, but you were also doing customer support fulfillment. Yep. So so what. What does a an ops guy do when you say that? What what does that mean exactly? Yeah, I think that's the that's the, the the one of the main questions. Operations is defined differently for different companies, right? Um, I think it's interesting though, and I still really love the term um, for startups, especially because it is all encompassing. You know, I, I am a I am blessed and cursed to be a generalist in a lot of ways. I mean, I'm somebody who knows enough about a number of different things to be able to to do them, help to out, be dangerous, et cetera. Yeah, <laughs> maybe to be dangerous. And so, you know, I like hiring ops people. What I mean by that is people who can figure out how to do a lot of different things and and maybe not know exactly what their niche is or even maybe what their job is at the beginning um, and figuring that out as they go. And part of the, I like to find those types of people because I was one of those people. I loved the, the title of operations because I could do a number of different things um, and, and, and found a lot of interest and love doing a number of different things. Now, that being said, 
other types of companies, operations is, can be more and more specific. Um, there's financial operations, right? There is literally development operations. So there's DevOps, you know, and in manufacturing and, and shipping companies, right? Ops is a very, is the core of the business in a lot of ways. So I think it's just a general term of all those people, like I keep saying, kind of more behind the scenes that are doing the stuff, doing, you know, I, I had an old tag name, tagline of myself. I'm, I'm one of the guys that makes it go. You know, and that's what I mean. I think they make it go. Um, they pay the bills. They they make sure you do it right. Um, so whether you're quality, whether you're finance, whether you're support, um, whether you're, you know, recruiting um, in, in some way, shape or form, you can be operational. Well, I think in the process of being a generalist, it, you, you developed your niche within operations, within marketplaces and you actually, are, you seem to be someone who there's a lot of demand for someone like you, right? Like if I, if I wanted to launch a marketplace that doesn't exist yet, you'd probably be one of the first people that comes to mind to me. Well, that's really nice of you to say. <laughs> but I mean it though. I, I it's it's like you're you're you've created this backdoor entrance into something that is that is actually niche if you think about it. But it started with you. I guess being more of a generalist in a couple of different industries. Yeah, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, I have definitely been able to see enough of the things that you've got to do right from the beginning. Yeah, I think if I if I were able to say, you know, what is my specialty, superpower, that kind of a thing, I think where I'm extremely comfortable is in the ambiguous and the nebulous. I'm a I'm a great zero to one guy. Um, I've definitely learned a lot more about the one to beyond. Um, but what I'm really comfortable in is, um, like you said, like if you, hey, I've got to make this thing happen. I've got to build this marketplace. Um, hell, I've got to build a company. I've got to build a product. Um, I've been asked all of those things and been the guy that has come in and helped in one way, shape or form, if not a number of ways. And so I am really comfortable when there's a whiteboard and, and an idea and it says, let's make this happen. Let's make this work. Let's figure out what we need to do next. Um, I'm really, really comfortable there. I noticed that because you were the original member, original five members in five or six different companies that I found in researching you. And, and that's, that's literally going from, you, you called it nebulous to concrete, right? Or more ethereal to concrete. And, and I think it shows that you're drawn towards that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Even as I've gotten into bigger, more established companies, I've typically joined a team or a department or something that is kind of new, right? Where we're, we're doing something new or we've got to build something new. Um, it's definitely one of the spaces I enjoy the most. Assurance is a great example of that when, yeah. when, when you came in. Yeah. So this whole supply and demand, why, why we're doing season three, Marketplace Mayhem, one analogy we've used is we call it the chicken or the egg problem. The, the chicken, chicken being the demand and egg being supply. And we have this kind of fun idea, like which came first, the supply or the demand? So I, I guess I, I got a question for you and I'd like to double click on one of these two places and I'll let you choose. So what came first at wrench or DoorDash, supply or demand? I mean, I think you have to say demand came first in the sense that 
at DoorDash, you know, we all have our favorite restaurants. It would always be great to sometimes have our favorite dish at home, right? So takeout delivery has been around forever. DoorDash didn't invent it. I think what they figured out, though, was when you put a whole bunch of that opportunity for supply, it became much more attractive, right, to, to go to an app or go to a website versus just calling in that one place you know. And so, you know, I think one of the things that they were always passionate about was this idea of discovery, right? Like discovering new places. But Mm. you had to start with someone being willing to go to the app. So I think you have to say people were willing to go to the DoorDash app, willing to go to DoorDash.com and take a look for their teriyaki joint, right? Like for their... There, that place down the street that they weren't sure that delivered, maybe that, maybe that, that, that DoorDash app delivers those guys. And I think that was one hook. So, but I think if you listen to the formula, you quickly have to have the supply. If you don't have that teriyaki joint that they love, will they come back? <laughs> will they look around? Will they naturally discover quote unquote? And arguably, I, I don't know if they would. And so, um, I think it, you know, you always have to have the idea of like someone wants this or wants something like this, um, but they don't know how much they want it until they really get all the benefit of the supply. I do think one of the places that might have been a little different than that is actually Uber, right? Like I think Uber was a little bit better in my opinion. You know, I know a lot of people say, oh, the, the, they, they solved the taxi. They, they went after this taxi industry. I've never been a believer in that whole statement at the beginning. I think at the beginning, it was kind of this idea of magic, right? I, I say this a lot. It's just my own interpretation, but it's this idea that the smartphone had just been invented, right? The iPhone had just been invented. And there was this concept that suddenly we had the computer and the internet in our pocket. And what are all the cool things you could do with that? And one of the things that had not been captured was kind of this connection to the physical world or the thing around you, right? Like you could get music on there. You could get even, you could have some websites that were showing videos and you you had this stuff that you could see. You could read blogs all the time. You could listen to books, but you know, could you make something in the physical world kind of happen? Just Um, pop up. Exactly. And so I think there was this kind of magical moment when someone could push, you know, I always call it the big red button. Someone could push a big red button and a car showed up (laughs) and a car showed up. A car came over to pick you up. And arguably it may have started to impress a few friends and 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 from there i think the the magic was the hook right like suddenly something in the real world kind of happens so i would argue uber was a little bit earlier obviously a lot earlier in a lot of this stuff and pioneered a lot of these ideas because of what that magical moment of connecting this computer in your pocket internet in your pocket to the physical world so did people need rides or want rides i mean Again, arguably they had rides, right? There were ways to get around. There were, they were maybe not the best ways, but they were there. Um, I don't think that's exactly what Uber tapped into. Though. I think that that was an outcome of it or the next thing part of it of solving this frustration with taxi cabs and, and other parts of the industry. But I think there was, you can't forego the fact that there was just this super cool aspect of 
I push a button and especially in the early days, I push a button and a limo shows up, right? Like right. I push a button and a fancy car shows up to take me in a black SUV. Yeah. Right, exactly. So I think that just was that that great juxtaposition of a little bit of customer demand, but by providing this supply, providing this product in this magical way, um, which they were very, very good at, um, the super simple user interface to push a button and something happens, I think that just what couldn't be matched in a long time. In the DoorDash example, there's technically two categories of supply. There's the restaurants and then there's the drivers, right? And when you factor that in, which came first? Didn't the drivers have to come first or did the founders act as drivers? Well, yeah, definitely in the early days, all, all the founding team drove. Everybody drove, even the GMs. When I was a GM there, we, we always drove. And and still, arguably, the, the restaurants had to come first, Right. Meaning, so tactically executing the thing, the, yeah, what needed to be up was a menu, right? Like you had to have a menu to peruse as a user, right? And then once you hit the app and you said yes, then yeah, the driver, the driver had. When you have a three-sided marketplace, I think the dynamics are um, a little bit more unique and a little more complex, right? There's just a, a lot of different things that have to happen because once you push the button, yeah, the driver becomes everything in, in the situation, right? The driver literally now is the core of it. But before you push the button, the restaurant is such an important piece and the presentation of that restaurant and, and the food and the and the things that you're looking for. And then as it gets more advanced, you know, obviously the app and the website and this idea of discovery. I mean, I think I think, you know, one of the places where DoorDash starts to get magical is when you suddenly find that restaurant or that dish or that thing that you didn't have before through the app. And I think the pandemic, obviously a great opportunity to do some exploration for lots of different reasons. I would argue this has been happening for a while where people are able to see new businesses, new new dishes, new things pop up. Um, and now we're even having this concept of allowing the restaurants to expand, right? So um, this happened in Seattle after I launched DoorDash to some of our my more enterprising restaurant tours, where they would they would suddenly put up a couple different concepts as if they were their whole new restaurant from their same kitchen. You know, they would have a burger shop, but then they would have a salad shop as well. And lo and behold, it's the same exact restaurant. It's just this guy had a couple different menus couple different concepts he wanted to have to test out. This is now happening all over the delivery industry where restaurateurs, chefs, even even small business owners are able to kind of it's a way know, to experiment. Expand, experiment and expand their own offerings. And then all of a sudden discovery becomes really important on these apps because you can only get that menu there, right? You can't walk up to a physical building and get that menu anywhere else. You have to go to the app. Um, and that's kind of the more advanced, you know, magical moment that I think um, that the, this this type of supply creates. Yeah, the founders believed to be an important aspect. Discovery actually became true. It became the magic within. But you it. had to be comfortable to do it. Like you wouldn't do it the first time, more than likely, right? Like you wanted to see if this thing even worked, or you know, if you could afford it, or whatever. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I mean. Like the driver was core to that experience because it had to be on time. It had to be, you know, not and messed up. It had to be not cold, you know, warm, hot, still, whatever. 
all of those things had to come in a reasonable amount of time. All of those things needed to be there for, for you to get to that next level. Hey, hey, wasn't that awesome? Hope you're enjoying it so far. Yeah, and you better get ready because we didn't end the conversation there. So stay tuned for part two of this striking conversation. More mayhem coming. Thank <laughs> you.